how many of you enjoy a good biography? Biographies are fun to read because they are stories. They're a story of a real person's life. Even the story of a horrible person's life can be interesting and evoke compassion from us. Because when we read about someone else's life, we see them as a person who, like us, was born into a world of sin. We can identify with them in that they were born into a setting that they didn't choose but was chosen for them. And yet this person, like us, was born into a world that experiences much of God's grace and provision. It's interesting to see what shapes a person and to learn why they make the decisions that they made. Have you ever read a biography and then been intrigued by a side character in that person's story? Um, so much so that you would want to maybe pick up a biography on that person. Well, um, the book of 1 Samuel is mostly about Saul and David, who are Israel's first kings. But there's a significant character in this book, and his name is Samuel. Samuel was a godly man. He experienced favor with God and men. God spoke to him, and God worked through him for a really long time, for his whole life. Samuel was the one who led the nation in feasts and offerings to God. He anointed Saul to be the first king of Israel. He prayed for Israel as a nation, and he warned them about selecting a human king. He was also the one that passed on condemnation to, um, or it was like a, I guess it, yeah, it was condemnation really, to Saul, letting him know that God was taking away the kingship from him and from his family. Um, Samuel was the one who anointed David to be the king after Saul. And at the end of Samuel's life, there, the people of Israel really had nothing bad to say about him. The only charge that could be laid against him was that his sons were not just. Samuel had appointed them as judges, but they were taking bribes and they were not following um, Yahweh like Samuel had been. Samuel was a good leader in a rough time, and he stands in really sharp contrast to the leaders, the spiritual leaders in Israel before him, which was Eli and Eli's sons. And he also stands in contrast really to Saul, who was the leader after him. So this morning, we're going to meet a side character in Samuel's biography. There's a woman behind this man, and it is Hannah, his mother. So I think you guys have with you the title. Um, I called it The Holy Spirit's Biography of Hannah. And I had to pick just a few words to describe her, so I, I chose four, but I feel like they all really kind of come to the surface when you look at her. There's so many things that I think that she's exemplary in, but these are the four that I picked. She's a woman who exemplified humility, prayerfulness, love, and faith. And then we're just going to break down her little biography that the Bible gives us into four sections. The first one is her setting. It's the people and the place and like what she finds herself in. I've called it Hannah's hardship. And then the next section is Hannah's humility. And that's when she's in the temple and she's praying. And then the third section, I called it Hannah's homework for and homage to Yahweh. And then there's going to be a little section on her harvest. It's the fruit of her life that was produced. So I want to pray again, and then we're going to um, go ahead and look at the passage. <coughs> Heavenly Father, um, thank you so much for your word. I'm so thankful to have had the opportunity to study Hannah and to look more into um, what she was like, what her life was like, and I've been so um, privileged and uh, benefited so much from seeing what she knows of you. And I'm just thankful for what is recorded about her life and for um, her prayers that are recorded. 
Um, God, I'm just encouraged to see her love for you, and it um, encourages me to strive on to know you better and to walk with you. And I pray, God, that everyone in this room would walk away with um, a piece of truth about you, um, a piece of truth about themselves, just whatever you would want them to learn and to take away from this lesson. I pray, God, that you would do that. I just ask that your Holy Spirit would be at work through your word. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, you can go ahead and turn to 1 Samuel 1 and 2. Um, we're going to read just the first eight verses together. This is the setting in which we find Hannah. Before we look at her specific setting, let's just remember the general setting that's going on with Hannah right now. So Hannah lives in the time of the Judges. Um, you probably remember the last verse in the book of Judges. is kind of bleak. It says, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And I was just going to remind you of some of the stories from Judges. I don't really like to remember the stories from Judges, but they are descriptive and it's a good example of what was going on, what Hannah lived in. So do you remember the story of Micah, the young man who stole money from his mom? It's a good start to a story. Stole money from his mom. He used that money to make a metal image and then he built a shrine for this metal image and then he decided, oh, I need my own priest. So he took a Levite and set him up as a priest on his own property and he had this little, it was sort of like worship to Yahweh. Somehow he was including this with, this is worshiping God, but he just obviously made up his own stuff. So that's happening at the same time um, people from the tribe of Dan are wandering through Israel looking for a place to land. And I don't know exactly if they didn't get their land inheritance. I didn't understand exactly why, but they're wandering through Israel looking for land and they come across Micah's house and they see his metal image and they see this Levite and they think that's kind of cool. We're going to just take this guy and all these gods with us. Micah wasn't there. So they take him and they go to what the Bible calls a quiet and unsuspecting town and they think this is a good place to live. Let's burn it down. They burned it down, burned all the people and then they set up their home there. So that's just an example of one thing that's happening. There's no repercussions for them. There's no one to hold them to account for what they did. Um, then there's also that story of the Levite who has a concubine who or wife who leaves him and he goes to find her. She went back to her father's house. He takes her home. They're traveling through Israel and he's making sure that he stays only in towns that belong to Israel. And he stops in the town of Gibeah, which is a, tri or a town in the tribe of Benjamin. And that night, the men of the city kind of rush the house and say, hand over this guy to the man that owned it. We went basically to molest him. And so they, they're like, no. So they send out his wife or concubine and send her out and they molest her. Then she dies. And in the morning, he opens the door. She's dead. And he um, takes her body home and sends out pieces of her body to all the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone's horrified. You know, this has never been done in Israel. And anyway, there's so much that keeps going on. It ends with, in the end, the tribe of Benjamin, the men there are allowed to go just snag girls for their wives. Out of, there was a party going on basically and the men are allowed to just go just go grab a girl and take her to be your wife. And then they tell the dads, don't, don't go back and don't try to get them. So I mean, this is a horrible time. So this is the environment in which Hannah lives. And then in terms of scripture, what she had, she had the Pentateuch. She had um, the first five books of the Old Testament. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the books that Moses wrote. She also had Joshua at that time. Joshua wrote um, his story, the book of Joshua, and then they added that um, at the end of the Pentateuch. So that's 
That's all the revelation she had. We know from 1 Samuel 3 that the word of the Lord was rare in those days, and there were no frequent visions. So really that's all she had. There's not a lot of prophecy going on, and that's the access that she has to God. Okay, so let's go ahead and read the first eight verses together. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests to the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year after year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Okay, how many characters did you notice in this introduction? There is Hannah's husband. There's his second wife, Penina. There's Eli, his two sons, Hophni and Phineas, And then there's Penina's sons and daughters. So we get information first on her husband. His name is Elkanah. And Elkanah is a Levite. He lives in the tribe of Ephraim, um, but he was actually from the tribe of Levi. And as you probably remember, the Levites were not giving, given a land inheritance. The Lord was their inheritance, and so they were given portions in all the other tribes in which they could live and they could farm. So um, he would go and serve probably for like a few weeks at a time at the tabernacle. That's what the Levites did. They didn't serve all the time, so they would just go for a little bit. Maybe they would take care of the instruments used in worship, or they might lead in singing. Um, there's a lineage. His lineage is listed in First Chronicles 6. has his descendants and ancestors, and some of them served as song leaders when Solomon was the king. So that's Elkanah. Um, we can infer from the order in which the wives are listed that Elkanah married Hannah first. And then since she was unable to conceive children, it seems that he married Penina after that. And this was common in their culture because of the importance placed on passing on a name and passing on land to children. And however, this was not God's plan for marriage, and it never has been. From the beginning, God set up marriage to just include a husband and a wife. In Genesis 2, we see the first marriage. God instructed that a man should leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, which is singular, um, singular in the word, and the example is singular in Eve, and then they should become one flesh. Then in Jesus' earthly ministry, um, he reiterated that truth. He says, from the beginning, God has taught you this. God made it known that he made male and female, and that the two should become one flesh, and they're not supposed to be separated as long as they are both alive. So the math is simple. It's two become one. And then we also have more revelations that so we have the New Testament. We know um, one of the qualifications for pastor, an elder, or any godly man is that they are a one-woman man. So even though polygamy has never been God's design for marriage, it was 
somewhat common in the Old Testament. Not only would it have been um, somewhat common in Israel, I'm guessing, I think it was probably more common even in the pagan culture around them. So since it was common, I don't think it was as distasteful to them as maybe it is to us. And it made me kind of think maybe there's things, you know, that aren't distasteful to us that should be, um, just because we're used to it, kind of, you know, it's kind of common. So anyway, this is the reality that we find Hannah in. She's the first wife of Elkanah, and then he marries another woman to bear children. We also see that Elkanah is a faithful worshiper of Yahweh. He leads his entire household in this worship. They live, I got different numbers, but it's anywhere from 10 to 25 miles away from Shiloh. So they were close to Shiloh. And Shiloh is the town or the place where the tabernacle is located. So the tabernacle was the, like a tent, you know, and like they would carry it with them wherever they went. So now they're in the land. So they've set it up and they've probably started building um, permanent places kind of attached to it. So it's called the temple as well, but it's not, you know, a big, beautiful, nice, permanent temple. It's the tabernacle with some extra stuff around it. Um, But the main thing about the temple, the tabernacle, is that the Ark of God was there. And that's where the specific presence of God was located in Israel. And that's where the law required that everyone go to worship and to feast um, three times a year. So the requirement was just for the men. However, we see this entire family goes faithfully. And we can make an implication that this was probably due to Elkanah's leadership. Elkanah would offer to the Lord sacrifices, and he would worship, and then he would eat with his family, as the law had prescribed. He would give portions to everyone, and to Hannah he gave double. So there's evidence in this biography that there is genuine love and affection between Elkanah and Hannah. Elkanah loves her, and he expresses his love in actions, which is him giving her the double portion. He expresses it in words. He, he tries his best to comfort her, as we just read at the end, um, and help her in his distress or in her distress. He also seems to respect her as a godly woman, and he trusts her decisions. We'll see that later on in the passage. <coughs> and even though Hannah went so desperately to have children, there's no evidence that she's angry with her husband or with God or her circumstances. Neither does she revile Elkanah for marrying Penina. As far as scripture records for us, we don't see that. There are examples in scripture of other situations where there's rival wives. And one that came to mind was Sarah and Abraham and Hagar, where it was Sarah's idea that Abraham take Hagar as another wife in order to have a a child. And then Sarah is the one that becomes bitter against Hagar and Abraham, understandably, but um, it's just, it's different uh, with Hannah. She just um, demonstrates humility and an ability to love her husband in spite of his poor decision. And this was a poor decision that cost her greatly in her daily life. So there's a sweet love between these two, amazingly, in spite of their circumstances. Next, we see that Penina is not only fertile, but she is feisty. She especially likes to irritate Hannah whenever they go up to worship God. And it may have been because the love between um, Hannah and her husband was so evident at those times when he would show his love to her. Maybe they didn't have to be around each other as much when they were at home. I don't know. Or it could be even that the unity that Elkanah and Hannah share in their worship of Yahweh was something that Penina didn't understand or didn't share in. So whatever it was, she was relentless in her goading of Hannah. 
The Bible said that she would provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. Not only did she irritate her, she was picking something that Hannah had no control over. That's a situation that was beyond her ability to change, and that's exactly what um, Penina was picking to poke at. And that went on year after year, feast after feast, time of worship after time of worship. So what is the result of this setting? Hannah, who is barren but loved, she's living with a second wife and that wife's children. She's mocked and provoked by Penina, desiring greatly to be a mother. Verse 7 says, therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. Now there were laws about not partaking in feasts to the Lord when you're in mourning. And it could be that Hannah didn't want to participate in celebrating this peace with God when her heart was so distressed. Or it could have been that she just actually physically felt like she couldn't eat. She was just upset. So this feast was intended to be a joyful time, a time to rejoice in your peace with God that he grants through the sacrifice. And Elkanah is sad to see her so distressed. He tries to encourage her, and maybe even it was a gentle rebuke, um, just with reminding her of the good things that she had. He loves her deeply. Um, They both know there's nothing that either of them can do to open her womb. However, they do have each other, and Elkanah loves her greatly. I read a commentary by Matthew Henry on 1 Samuel, and I'm going to read, I want to read this to you because I actually like his choice of words, but it's a little bit hard to read or understand because his words are older, but I I like them. I think you'll get it. I'm just going to read it slowly. Our sorrow upon any account is sinful and inordinate when when it diverts us from our duty to God and embitters our comfort in him when it makes us unthankful for the mercies we enjoy and distrustful of the goodness of God to us and further mercies, when it casts a damp upon our joy in Christ and hinders us from doing the duty and taking the comfort of our particular relations. And then he quotes Elkanah. Am I not better to thee than ten sons? Thou knowest thou hast my entire affection and let that comfort thee. And then these are Matthew Henry's words again. Note, we ought to take notice of our comforts to keep us from grieving excessively for our crosses. For our crosses we deserve, but our comforts we have forfeited. If we would keep the balance even, we must look at that which is for us, as well as that which is against us. Else we are unjust to providence, and providence is with a capital P, and unkind to ourselves. God hath set the one over against the other, Ecclesiastes 7.14, and so should we. In other words, our sorrow must be seen to be inordinate or excessive when it keeps us from obeying God and taking comfort in him. He is the God of comfort. Um, We know that from 1 Corinthians. And we need to repent from our sorrow that keeps us from taking comfort in him. It's only to our joy that we trust the goodness of God in the midst of our sorrow. Matthew Henry instructs us to take notice of our comforts because that will keep us from grieving excessively. He he cited Ecclesiastes 7.14, which says that God has made the day of prosperity as well as the day of adversity. So Hannah, to her credit, accepts Elkanah's words of comfort. They may or may not have been truly comforting. Grace and humility and love, which she possessed, possessed, those things caused her to take comfort from someone who loved her and intended comfort, even if it wasn't exactly what she wanted to hear or how she wanted to be comforted. So after her husband talked to her and tried to comfort her with um, his love, she chooses to eat and drink with him. So that was a choice she made. 
she chose to do that instead of wallowing in any pity or trying to make him feel bad. Um, she made a choice with her will, and that choice flowed out of the godly character of her inner person. Okay, so we understand the setting of Hannah's biography. Let's move on to the next section, um, verses 9 to 20. I've called this Hannah's humility. Now, we've already seen evidence of her humility just now, just in her choice, um, but it's going to become even more evident in the next section. And I was going to ask you guys just to notice, look for some autobiographical information in this. So far, we just have the Holy Spirit's description of Hannah. Um, in this next section, she's going to give kind of her own, like you're going to see some of her own interpretations of herself and of her situation. And then also just take notice of what she's like after she leaves the temple. Okay, we'll start in verse 9. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Yahweh of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to Yahweh all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman, and Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your, grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. So we've already seen Hannah's humility in her um, willingness to go ahead and drink and eat and participate in the feast to Yahweh. So as soon as she's done eating and drinking, Hannah leaves. And I can almost imagine her like running out, like she can't wait to go pray. And then we see that Eli is there. He's the priest. He's overseeing the affairs that are going on in the temple. The Holy Spirit tells us that Hannah was deeply distressed, and she prayed to the Lord, and she wept bitterly. Can you identify with Hannah? Can you identify with being deeply distressed, weeping bitterly, and crying out to your maker, knowing that only he can give you the comfort and help that you're seeking? Two verses come to mind when I imagine this scene and the emotions that are raging in Hannah. 1 Peter 5, 6 and 7, which says, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, so that, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And then the first Peter 5 of the Old Testament, which is Psalm 55, 22, cast your burden on Yahweh and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. Hannah is casting her burden on the Lord. And then did you notice Hannah's description of herself? She says that she's afflicted, she calls herself Yahweh's servant when she prays. She calls herself that three times. She refers to herself as Yahweh's servant over and over. Then when she talks to Eli, she describes herself as a woman who is troubled in spirit, someone that's not been drinking, 
Um, she is someone who's been pouring out her soul to, before the Lord, one who's been speaking out of great anxiety and vexation. And then again, she calls herself a servant. This time she calls herself Eli's servant. So Hannah's view of herself is that she is weak, that she is without strength. She's troubled. She's distressed. She's unable to do anything about a situation that she's in. All she can do is pray and pour her heart out to Yahweh. Um, she's in a very undesirable situation, according to the wisdom of the world and according to natural man. Um, but she's in the best state when it comes to spiritual matters. God does not despise a broken and a contrite heart. One commentator wrote, God's tendency is to make our total inability his starting point. Our hopelessness and our helplessness are no barrier to his work. Indeed, our utter incapacity is often the prop he delights to use for his next act. When his people are without strength, without resources, without hope, without human gimmicks, then he loves to stretch forth his hand from heaven. That was Dale Ralph Davis. So I think there's some encouragements that we can go ahead and take away right now without waiting to the end, just from this biography. Um, God used the intentional, mean-spirited provocation of Penina as well as Hannah's barrenness, to drive Hannah to desperate prayer. Her heart was in agony, and she knew of only one recourse, and that was prayer. She cast herself upon Yahweh and poured her soul out to him. Not only can you and I most likely identify with Hannah in that agony and brokenness, but there's someone who can identify perfectly and to an even greater degree. Notice the parallel with Jesus. Jesus was in agony of spirit before he was arrested in the garden, Luke 22:44 says, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Hannah's agony of heart, our own agony of heart, certainly can't be put on the same level as Jesus' agony over anticipating bearing sin and its just punishment. But we can be encouraged that our sympathetic Savior knows what it's like to be in agony of spirit. And it led Jesus to pray more earnestly. And if that's what he did, that's certainly what we need to do. That's what Hannah did. Then notice also the specific request of Yahweh that Hannah makes. Verse 11 is a vow. So she's asking something of God, and then she's saying that she'll give something back to him. So there's three things that she asks of Yahweh. First, she asks that Yahweh would look on her affliction. It's like she's saying, Lord, I know you know all, and you see everything, and I can make an appeal to your mercy and loving kindness and ask you to notice and look on my affliction. It's hard for me, and it's heavy. Please look at this and see my broken heart. And then secondly, she asked that Yahweh would remember her and not forget her. Please remember me, your servant. I am yours. I belong to you. My role is to serve you. I don't see you as a genie in the bottle or as my servant. I'm yours, and I'm asking you to remember me and not forget me in light of what's troubling my heart. Then thirdly, she asks specifically for a son. She doesn't ask for many children. She just asks for one. She wants a son. She'd be happy with just one. She says um, she wants to be able to raise a son up who can serve God and belong to Yahweh's service in a special way for the entirety of his life. This would be joy to her. She would love to have a child whom she could love, train, and then give back to God. She promises that she'd give him back to Yahweh and that she would keep him under a Nazarite vow for the whole of his life. Verse 12 says that Hannah continued praying before Yahweh. So there's more that she prayed privately 
with the Lord than what we have recorded. What we know is that Hannah had confidence in Yahweh's ability and willingness to hear her prayers. It is characteristic of God to hear the prayers of the humble and the destitute and to take notice of hearts that are wholly his. She belongs to God and she trusts him and she feels the freedom to ask for the deepest desire of her heart. So Eli sees her mouth moving and he doesn't hear any words and he assumes the worst and he's very wrong. Eli's assumption is understandable when you think about the way sin was abounding and the way it was manifested in that culture and even in the temple, maybe even especially in the temple. Eli's sons were greedy, they dishonored the Lord, they really had no regard for the Lord even though they were priests. They would take things from the people that were coming to offer. You know how you're supposed to offer the fat to the Lord and then the priest could take a little bit? They would just take it before it was um, cooked. They, they were greedy, they just disregarded the Lord. They were also sexually immoral with women that would come in to worship at the temple and even those women that came into worship that might have been sort of under pretense or obviously not according to the law. And so it's understandable that Eli was assuming the worst. However, he's not off the hook. And there's a good reminder for us here. Proverbs 18, 13 says, If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. And so Eli really did act foolishly. He rebuked Hannah, and he was completely wrong. But here again we get to see the grace and humility that reside in Hannah's heart. Hannah could have looked at her situation this way and made a list of all her woes. She could have thought, okay, I live with this woman who's continually provoking me. Um, it's unjust and I have no control over not having children. She wants so much to be a mom and then month after month, she's reminded that she's not and that she can't be at least for one more month. Um, she has been gently, possibly re lovingly rebuked by her husband. Even a loving rebuke can have a sting, and you can, you could feel sorry for yourself in that situation. Um, she also just wants to run out and, and pray. And here she is praying in the temple, and a spiritual leader who's supposed to be a shepherd is rebuking her for drinking, for being drunk. I mean, she could really feel sorry for herself and want to snap at Eli. In fact, there are things she could say to Eli that would be valid. Um, unlike his rebuke to her, but that's not what we see. Um, what we see come out of her mouth is just evidence of grace and humility that reside in her heart, even though it was broken and grieving. And you know how we talk about when we're bumped, what comes out of us is truly what's in our heart. And here's Hannah, it's, like, it's a dark hour for her, and she's bumped, and what comes out but humility and grace, and I just am amazed at that. Um, one of the books I read on Hannah just made a helpful observation and exhortation. He said, when we are unjustly censored, we need to set a double watch before the door of our lips. So Hannah did not repay evil for evil. Um, she did vindicate herself. She accurately gives an account of herself to Eli to correct his um, misconceptions. She did it very sweetly, and she did it so transparently that Eli has moved from one end of an impression of her to the opposite end. Um, she tells him that she hasn't been drinking, but she's troubled in spirit. She's pouring her soul out before the Lord, and she's speaking out of great anxiety and vexation. She calls herself Eli's servant. She sees him as an authority, and she honors him in that role and speaks to him in a manner according to the respect that she has for his position. So I think it's interesting. I just wanted you to notice that Hannah doesn't feel the need to tell the specifics of her prayer. She's not telling Eli the tale of her woes, 
Um, she only tells Yahweh. That's it. She doesn't feel like she needs to tell Eli in order to have him pray for her. Um, she knows that she's left that request with the only one who can do anything about her situation. And that just demonstrates where her faith is placed. She doesn't lay the burden of her unmet desires on her husband or on Eli. Not that it's wrong to ask people to pray for you, um, but it just shows that um, her faith and her trust was in Yahweh. And it also demonstrates her humility again. Okay, so back to the story. Eli, to his credit, is not defensive in explaining himself of why he thought that. He just does a 180. He just totally flips around um, seems to have a very good impression of her. In fact, he gives kind of an amen to her prayer. He doesn't know the specifics, the details of her prayer, but he's convinced that she is a woman who's humble and godly and truly innocent of the matter in which he had um, accused her of. So he basically says, so be it. You know, may God answer your prayer. That's what I'm hoping for you. So now we're at the part that I think is so encouraging. Hannah leaves the temple and it says she ate, and her face was no longer sad. Was Hannah pregnant at this point? No. Um, was she certain that she would become pregnant? I don't think so. I don't think she had um, any sort of revelation from God. I don't think that um, Eli saying, may God answer your prayer, I don't think that was some sort of revelation from God. You will, this, your prayers will be answered. Um, it just is encouraging because we know that it's possible to have joy without the desires of our heart being met. We can cast our cares on the Lord and then walk away with a joyful countenance. It's possible. Matthew Henry, again, in his commentary writes, Hannah believed that God would give her either the mercy that she had prayed for or make up the want of it to her some other way. She didn't have a promise, um, but she had faith. She had um, trust that God would do what was right. So the next morning, the family rises early to worship before the Lord, and then they head back to Ramah. And it seems that right away, Hannah experiences answers to her prayer. Verse 19 says that Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. It's exactly the same wording from her prayer. She had asked that Yahweh would remember her, and he did. He knows the details of our lives. He sees it all. He remembered Hannah, and she conceived. And she had a son the son that she had asked for. And what did she name him? She gave him a name that would remind her every time she called him to her, every time she said it, that God had heard her prayer. She named him Samuel, which means I have asked for him from Yahweh. Samuel's name would also be a reminder to Samuel himself of the prayer that his mom had made for him before he was created. It would remind him of her dedication of him to the Lord. It would remind him what his life was about. Uh, one of the commentators I read gave a, I thought it was a really sweet personal account of his childhood. It was touching to read. He was from a family of five boys. He was the youngest of the five boys, and his family was very consistent in family worship. His dad would lead it um, every night, it sounded like. When his dad was out of town, his mom would lead family worship, and he said, I always half dreaded the nights that she would lead it. And the reason was that after they, would, they were done reading the Bible, she would pray for each of the boys by name. And he said that as a son, to hear his mom's heart expressed in prayer to the Lord for each of them, just knowing they belonged to her, but all she wanted for them was that they would belong to the Lord. It would always just evoke tears. Like, he was just very moved by it. And he was the youngest, and so he hated it because he'd always have tears in his eyes, and he didn't want his brothers to see him crying. So I just thought that was sweet. 
but what a gift um, to have a mom that wants nothing more for her child than that he or she belong wholeheartedly to the Lord and who prays to that end. Okay, so, so far we've seen um, her, Hannah's setting, which is her hardship. We've seen her humility on display in her prayers and in her interactions with her husband and in, in the way that she interacts with God and Eli and even in the name that she gives her son. So now we're going to see her heart expressed in her work at home as a mother. And this is really just for the first three years of Samuel's life. Then we're going to see her give honor and homage to Yahweh when she goes back to the temple with Samuel to present him. So let's just read. We're just, I'm going to kind of break this up as we read it. Let's just read verses 21 to 28 in chapter 1. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh, and the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O oh, my Lord, as you look, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. So Hannah has given birth to Samuel. And now it's time to go up to Shiloh to offer the yearly sacrifice and to have a feast before the Lord. And it sounds like Elkanah has a vow to pay to the Lord as well. So it could be that Elkanah, as well as Hannah, made a vow that if his beloved wife were to have a child, um, there was something that he was going to fulfill. So he's going up, but Hannah tells Elkanah that she is not going to go this time, but she's going to stay home until she weans Samuel. Elkanah trusts her decision and her resolve, So here's another window into their marriage. There is mutual trust and respect between these two. In the Old Testament law, a woman's vow to Yahweh could be canceled by her husband if he didn't agree. So obviously Elkanah was in agreement with Hannah's vow that she'd made in the temple on her own. Um, It could have been maybe she told him she was going to do that or afterwards. But either way, he's definitely in agreement with this. Elkanah just says to her, okay, do what seems best to you. Only may Yahweh establish his word. And that last part, it may just be um, Elkanah's way of saying, may God keep Samuel safe through the dangers of infancy. Because um, Hannah's made this vow, and it seems that God is answering it because he's given you this son. It hasn't come to total fruition yet because we haven't been able to present him to the Lord for this service. So may God just keep him safe, keep this going so that this whole vow can um, come to fruition. So we know that Hannah's homework is very important to her. She most likely, according to most of everything that I read actually, um, says that they would nurse their children at this point um, in time, three years. So she had a short time to take care of him, to hold him, to enjoy him, and to train him. And she wanted to make the most of that time and not leave him with anyone else to nurse him while she left to go up to Shiloh to worship. So in my mind, I'm not really sure, like, why wouldn't you just take him with you? But everything I read, like, that wasn't even an option. It was either um, you leave him at home with servants and someone else nurses him and you go and worship, or 
she stays home and takes care of him and nurses him. So she obviously chose the latter. And all we can observe concretely from the text is that during these three years, um, she just made staying home and nursing him her priority. And Samuel had to have been prepared at home for what he was going to do with his life. Think about what kind of training must have taken place so that a three-year-old boy is not left kicking and screaming and crying after his mom when he's dropped off at the temple. Not just to be taken care of, but he was there to help. Uh, that's just a lot of training. I have to believe there was a lot of training regarding authority and obedience so that when Hannah's authority over Samuel is transferred to Eli, it's not a surprise to Samuel. So she had a lot to do in those three years. Um, Hannah was the first one to teach Samuel about Yahweh. She was the one who directed his learning and his interest. She was intentionally preparing him for a lifetime of service to Yahweh. When it was time and Samuel was weaned, Hannah and her husband take Samuel along with sacrifice offerings to the temple in Shiloh. And there is no sense of sorrow or sadness in this scene. I think that's amazing. There's only joy and exaltation of God, a sense of amazement at God's kindness to her. And this is where we see the greatest evidence that Hannah's desire for a child was not idolatrous. She was not asking to just get something she wanted. Hannah was given to the Lord. Remember, she calls herself Yahweh's servant multiple times. She wanted the privilege of giving herself to a child in order to give him back to Yahweh. And that brings questions to mind. Why do I, why do you want to be a mom? What do I, what do you think motherhood is about? Am I passionate about motherhood for the reasons, reasons that Hannah was? Is my goal, is your goal in parenting to honor God and affect the next generation for godliness by training my children in the fear of the Lord for their own benefit as well as for others? This is what John MacArthur said about Hannah and her parenting in a sermon that he preached on this passage. He said, A godly mother presents her child to God. When you bear a child, ladies, that child belongs to God as much as Hannah's child did. That child is a heritage from the Lord, not your own, but a treasure which you manage for his glory, a godly seed for which you are to influence society from the bottom up. Women don't need to be president. Women don't need to be congresswomen. Women don't need to be the head of corporations. Women don't need to run the church. All women need to do is raise godly children, and they'll affect society in a way they never could any other way. So Hannah presents Samuel to Eli, and as she calls it, she lends him to Yahweh to dwell before the, before the Lord at the temple in Shiloh. And this is where we see her give homage to God. She prays again. So let's read her prayer in chapter 2. Just try to notice what Hannah knows about God and keep in mind what she has access to. Um, Hannah prayed and said, My heart exults in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. 
He brings low and he exalts. He takes up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. This time, Hannah's prayer is not silent, just between her and Yahweh. It's a praise that's spoken, and it's meant to be heard. It's to Yahweh, and it's for the benefit of those who are near enough to hear her talking. And it's to our benefit, because we have it in Scripture. She wants to give praise where praise is due. She says that her heart exalts, and her strength is exalted in Yahweh. So remember this woman who was grieving, distressed, unable, without strength. This woman now has strength, but it's a strength that's been given to her from God. It's not her own. Then notice that the object of Hannah's praise is Yahweh, which seems obvious. It's a prayer. Of course, it's Yahweh. But she doesn't even mention Samuel by name or even really at all. She seems to overlook completely the gift and just praises the giver. I'm actually struck by the lack of mention of Samuel. Hannah didn't speak about how wonderful and smart and handsome this miracle baby was. She truly was more in awe of the one who had given her this gift than in awe of the gift itself. Matthew Henry writes, Every stream should lead us to the fountain. There may be other Samuels, but no other Yahweh. So what does Hannah know about Yahweh? She knows there is no one who is completely holy, which means set apart. There's no one else like him that's just set apart. He's totally unique, his own being. He's the only one. He's a rock, which means he's stable. He's a protector. Hannah had found relief and comfort in that aspect of Yahweh. He is all-knowing or omniscient. Verse 5 says that Yahweh is a God of knowledge, and he weighs the actions of men. So because of that, there's no room for arrogant speech from the mouths of mere men. She knew that God was intimately knowledgeable of her heart, as well as every human heart that existed. Then in the rest of her prayer, she talks about God in relation to different categories of people. So you could say there's lots of categories, or you could say there's two. There's two that are kind of like a negative category, or you can almost mix up which one's negative and which one's positive. Um, So she says there's um, people who are mighty, those who are full, those who have borne seven children, there's wicked, and there's adversaries of Yahweh. Then she also mentions this other group, um, people that are feeble, the hungry, the barren, the needy, the poor. Then there's the faithful ones that belong to Yahweh. So there are people who are strong and who seem to lack no earthly or worldly comforts. Um, They have all they desire, but in a moment, Yahweh can change their situation, and they could be hungry, without strength, um, without any comfort. And it just as easily can he make someone who is barren have seven children, or someone who is hungry, full, um, someone who is poor, rich. So it's all in his hands. So all these categories have that in common, that God is in control of their circumstances and can change their circumstance or their setting in a second, according to his will. She says, Yahweh kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. He makes rich and he makes poor. So regardless of our situation, we know that we're in God's hands. We are not the masters of our own fate. The earth is his. Um, He is the one who sustains it and supports it. 
And then there's the good news. If you belong to Yahweh, he will guard your feet. There's personal comfort in verse 9. It says, he will guard the feet of his faithful ones. So no matter what situation the people that belong to God find themselves in, no matter if it's good or bad, we know that it's from him. Um, Even if you don't belong to God, we know that whatever circumstance anyone is in, it all is from God. Um, The difference is, for those that belong to God, it says he guards their feet. That means he's guarding their path and their way. So no matter if that situation is dark, you know that you're protected because your way is guarded by God through whatever you're going through. And it doesn't say that about um, those who are God's adversaries or those who don't belong to him. Yes, he's in charge of their circumstances and situation, but he's not protecting especially or guarding their path the way that he does with his own. In fact, it says that God's adversaries, um, it says they'll be cut off in darkness. It's almost like they're on this path or this trail that's luxurious and comfortable and nice and they just run straight into a wall and then there's just darkness. It's that, that path is done. There is no, nothing else but darkness and judgment from Yahweh. So that's the other thing that Hannah knows. She knows that Yahweh will judge the ends of the earth. She also knows that Yahweh will give strength to his king. That's an interesting reference because there's no king in Israel. Hannah has heard that there's a promised seed that was specifically promised to Eve. Um, the seed was going to set people free from Satan's rule, his tyranny. She also knows from Moses that the scepter is not going to pass away from Judah. So there's going to be someone from Judah who is a king that will rule forever. So she knows these things, um, these truths that are from God, that there's someone, some, somebody they're supposed to be looking forward to who is going to rule, who is going to set everything right. Um, she also says um, she's looking forward to God's anointed The English word Messiah represents the Hebrew word that Hannah used here for anointed. So she has hope in God's future plan for human history, specifically in a king and a Messiah. Hannah's prayer reveals a heart that is grounded in the knowledge of God's sovereign macro rule over the universe and in his micro rule over the circumstances of each individual. She knows that God is kind and that he is specially protective of his faithful ones as they live and move upon the earth. He also has a long-term plan for all of human history, and it culminates in this Messiah, the anointed king from Yahweh. Her love for the Lord just pours out of his prayer. And again, we see her humility on display. Um, And it's just obvious that her humility comes from her knowledge of God, because you couldn't be humble without having that kind of view of God. Okay, so this last section, I have tagged on bits and pieces of Samuel's life. Um, this is Hannah's harvest, which is the fruit of her life. Hannah's fruit is seen in Samuel's life after he's been out of her home. Samuel's godly influence that he had over the nation was fruit that was produced by God. Um, and though ultimately God gets the credit, the sowing of seeds and the watering of those seeds was Hannah's God-given work. Samuel's character and his life of ministry is no small thing. God used Samuel to set the foundation for a new stage in Israel's history. He is the first person to occupy the office of prophet. There were prophets before him where God would speak through people, um, but this is the first time where there's a person that God speaks through consistently um, over a long period of time. Um, it doesn't mean that there's only going to be one prophet at a time. It just means he's, uh, there's certain people he sets apart as prophets, and Samuel's the first one. Um, 
verse 11, I think, was maybe included in the section before, but I'm just going to read that now and include it in this last section. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy ministered to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Then the rest, the next couple, few verses are about Eli's sons, and it's almost like it's setting a contrast between Eli's sons and the way Samuel was. So skip on down to verse 16 of chapter 2. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod, and his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. And that's the end of Hannah's biography. That's all we have about her. And then verse 21. Indeed, the Lord... Oh, sorry. There's more. <laughs> this part. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the young man, Samuel, grew in the presence of the Lord. Now, that is the end of Hannah's biography. Um, skip down to verse 26. Now, the young man, Samuel, continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and with man. Okay, and then, um, I won't read this, but... Chapters 3 through 12 is the rest of Eli's, or I'm sorry, Samuel's life. Um, Samuel, I think probably the best commendation we have of Samuel is that it said that the, Yahweh was with him and his word did not fall um, regarding what Samuel did with it. Samuel truly heard the word of the Lord and then he was faithful to present it accurately and faithfully to the nation or to whoever there might have been a specific individual that God had wanted him to talk to. But that's what Samuel did. Um, so we see that God blessed Hannah with more children. Um, she also was still having interaction with Samuel. Um, it might have even been more often than once a year, uh, just because they were so close. Yearly could just mean like they were just continually. They were continually going up to the feasts and sacrifices. So she still had some opportunity to influence him, um, but she just didn't get to live with him. Um, <clears throat> Okay, so the nation was in desperate need of godly leaders during Hannah's day. Her desire was to see Yahweh exalted and to be a godly mother and to bear a son and to train him and to give him to full-time service, and that came to fruition after much heartache and disappointment and affliction. The fires of affliction culminated in desperate prayer and purified Hannah's heart. This made her more fit to raise a godly son and to praise Yahweh publicly. She reaped a harvest, and she bore fruit for God. The fruit of her life blessed her husband, it blessed her son, and no doubt it blessed her subsequent children. It blessed the nation of Israel, it blessed King David, and it blesses even us here in the United States in 2015. So we don't know how God will use our affliction or our lives, but we can trust him just as wholeheartedly as Hannah did, that he will guard the feet of his faithful ones. So... Let's move on to implications. Um, there's a, I think there's going to be a lot of implications. I'm picking three, um, and I would encourage you to, you know, the Holy Spirit can help you apply his word however uh, he would want you to. But there's a lot of women who have poured their heart and their souls out to the Lord in prayer, and there's a lot of p women who have experienced amazing answers to prayer, just like Hannah. But only a few women's stories are included in Scripture. 
And I'm just thankful that we have the story of Hannah. It's very encouraging. There's, it's like the story of Daniel where we don't really see any of Daniel's sin. It's not recorded. Uh, not that he didn't sin. Same thing with Hannah. We don't really see, um, it doesn't seem like blatant or obvious sin in her life. Um, it's just a very encouraging story. And that doesn't mean that she didn't sin, but that's just what we have recorded about her. Um, I'm also thankful for the other stories that we have where people were not as shining of examples. Um, for example, Rachel, she was barren as well, and her request and her desire for children was not quite as humble or as selfless as Hannah's. She says to Jacob, not even to God, give me children or I die. So the reason I appreciate it is that in each of these stories, God's character is on display. He is merciful and he is faithful um, regardless of the faithfulness and the response of the, the women or his children. And it's helpful to see that, um, that he, does, he doesn't change. He remains the same. However, the other reason it's helpful to see it is that our response to God affects our joy and our happiness in him. And we get to see that in Hannah. Hannah just seems to have joy, and she seems to have peace because of her response to the Lord and her response to him in the midst of her circumstance. So I think probably everyone in the room can relate to one or maybe more aspects of Hannah's life living with um, affliction of some sort, childlessness, not receiving something that we deeply desire, uh, maybe being married to a man that loves God, but whose sinful decision is creating a difficult living situation, raising little ones, um, desiring God to be glorified in your children's lives, and in society, uh, there's all kinds of things, worshiping God for his mercy and goodness. So what implications can we take away? Well, first of all, first off, Hannah's faith in and her love for Yahweh are exemplary, and we would do well to follow her example with the help of God. At every turn in the story, Hannah is undistracted from following Yahweh and doing and being what she knows he wants her to do and be. So, for example, with Penina, it doesn't seem that she's getting, she's obviously hurt by the provoking and the irritation, but she doesn't get off focus and just look at Penina and respond to her and revile her. She's hurt, but she's still pursuing Yahweh. And then even when she's in the temple and Eli is rebuking her, she doesn't get distracted and, and fall, you know, veer off and start being upset at Eli and, you know, licking wounds or feeling sorry for herself. She's still pursuing the Lord. And I feel that way too when she has Samuel. She doesn't um, veer off and start just adoring the gift and not the giver. She's still pursuing Yahweh and worshiping him. She loved the fountain of delights and the giver more than the gifts that he gave her. Her love for Yahweh is obvious in how she talks about him and in how she knows him when she prays aloud in the temple. So the first implication is just to pursue a sincere devotion to and love for our Savior, which fits in great with our wellspring discipline number one. It seems to be Hannah's first priority. She doesn't have the name of Jesus like we do. Um, but just be encouraged by Hannah's love for God in a time when revelation from God was smaller, was less, in a time when everyone was doing what was right in his own eyes. There were dangers from other nations like the Philistines, as well as internal dangers within the 12 tribes of Israel, like you know, the Danites wandering around doing crazy things. And there was a lot of sexual immorality. Also, the worship of Yahweh in the temple was not according to the law. It wasn't according to biblical standards. And it was mixed with pagan and naturally sinful practices. So I would dare to say that the world Hannah lived in was more 
morally degenerate than the society that we live in. Her love for Yahweh shines like a bright light in the dark backdrop of her world. The second implication that we can take away is just the comfort and the privilege of prayer. God has given us access to himself through Christ. We can come before his throne boldly because we are counted righteous, because Jesus has traded his righteousness for our condemnation. Since we have this privilege, we would be remiss to forego the comfort and the help we receive when pouring our soul out to the Lord. The third implication for our lives is that growing in humility is appropriate as well as beautiful. Hannah's name means grace, and grace, as you know, is unmerited favor. It's something that we don't deserve. Hannah's humility displayed itself in her ability to bestow grace on the people in her life, to the people close to her, like Elkanah, her husband, and to the people she didn't know quite as well, such as Eli. Gracious behavior, by definition, is not dependent on another person's worthiness or their kindness or their respectability. So I don't know what Hannah looked like, but I know she was beautiful. She was beautiful according to God's definition. God tells us that a beautiful woman has a gentle and quiet spirit, which is um, the difference between a rushing stream that's bubbling and crazy um, versus a brook or something that's calm. Her heart was calm. It was um, undistracted. It was not fretful. It was trusting in the Lord. Hannah did not have a lofty view of herself. She had a lofty view of God. She didn't just know about God, she knew God, and that's what produced this humility in her. So I'm going to close by reading a psalm. It's Psalm 142, and I just read it, oh, I don't know, a few months ago, just in my own quiet time, and I just thought, oh my goodness, I think Hannah could have written this, of course, because I'm you know, thinking about Hannah all the time. It's written by David, but it just sounds like something that she could have prayed, and I think it's a fitting conclusion to her biography. So you can follow along with me, or you can just listen. Psalm 142. With my voice, I cry out to Yahweh. With my voice, I plead for mercy to Yahweh. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see. There is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. I cry to you, O Yahweh. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison, that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, just again, thank you for the example of Hannah. Thank you for um, just your wisdom in knowing who and what we need to um, read about and have recorded for us in scripture. God, I'm thankful that there are women, there are men who have loved you wholeheartedly by your enabling. And God, we want to follow in their footsteps. And um, I know that we want to follow in Hannah's footsteps in terms of being um, women of prayer, women who truly know you, who don't just know about you, but really know you. Um, I pray, God, that we would walk closely with you, um, treasuring your word, tre treasuring um, what we've seen you do and continuing to pray and to um, live lives that are humble and full of faith and love to you and uh, love for others. And I pray, God, that you would work in us to that end. I pray for the rest of this morning that it would be 
beneficial to the women who are here and, and then ultimately to our body and to the um, people around us that live in the world that um, we get to interact with. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.